Okay, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 3, if you want to join me there. As we continue our study through Deuteronomy, we left off at the end of chapter 2 and really sort of right in the middle of this first sermon of Moses. Again, the book of Deuteronomy is sort of a series of sermons, a farewell address that Moses in the last month or so he has with the children of Israel before he dies and Joshua takes over and leads them into the land. Moses is sort of just rehearsing some things with them, reminding them of their history, of God's faithfulness. And really in this particular section, uh, in this particular first sermon that we're looking at in these first few chapters takes us almost to the end of chapter 4. Moses, particularly at this juncture, has now been rehearsing sort of the faithfulness of God in their lives despite their unfaithfulness to God and how though they had been unfaithful, how they had failed the Lord, that God yet still had been faithful to them. And boy, is that not something thematically that every one of us, if we were honest, in this room this evening can relate to how at times we have been unfaithful to the Lord whether it's the way we lived before we really came into a relationship with Jesus Christ and yet God was still gracious to us he was merciful Jesus himself says in the New Testament God makes his the rain and the sun to come upon the just and the unjust God's a good and a gracious God and in many ways he was faithful to us was kind to us took good care of us before we even knew what it meant to have a relationship with God but yet even as his people and even as Christians, as followers of the Lord, there are times where we go through our own bouts of unbelief and unfaithfulness and disobedience. We take our little tour of backsliding or rebellion and yet God is gracious to us. He's merciful. And despite our faithlessness or our unfaithfulness, he remains faithful and kind. And really that's the, the, the sense of what Moses has been rehearsing now as he's been describing to them, reminding them of the things that God has done in their past, particularly the victories he has given to them of some of the battles which were preparatory battles in their time prior to this where God is now preparing them to get ready and go into the promised land which will in involve a lot of conflicts and a lot of battles for them to overcome territories and overcome enemies to take possession of all that God has intended for them and particularly how God has given them some victories uh, that were giant victories and no pun intended in that over people who were giants in the land much larger and more powerful than them and another one is described here in chapter 3 as we begin Moses says then we turned again he's recounting their prior history and these battles they've already overcome then we turned and went up the road to Bashan and Og king of Bashan came out against us now we studied these things in Numbers chapter 21 and some of our prior studies together so we won't spend a lot of time here but he's reminding them of these battles they had fought once before and how Og uh, king of Bashan came out against them he and all his people to battle at Edre and the Lord said to me Moses remembered that God said to him do not fear and we're going to see why that was necessary because these indeed were intimidating People And at times when we face intimidating circumstances, uh, God wouldn't say repeatedly throughout his word, do not fear. And you notice how many times you find in the Bible, do not fear, do not be afraid, do not fear, because God realizes we're prone to that. Uh, 
We're prone to get intimidated. We're prone to get nervous and anxious. And maybe even that's something struggling in your heart tonight. There's something you're facing that's got you fearful and worked up or concerned. And perhaps God would be saying to you tonight as you face some giant situation in your life that seems large and looming, do not fear, God says. For I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him, God says, just as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So God says, in the same way I gave you victory over Sihon, that man and the people there of the Amorites. He says, look, in the same way, don't be afraid because God says, I promise you in advance, I've already delivered him into your hand. You're going to succeed. You're going to have victory over this, God tells him, before they even engaged in the battle. So verse 3, the Lord our God, again, God spoke it, and when God speaks it, God does it. The Lord our God also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining, and we took all his cities at that time. And there was, notice, not a city, verse 4, which we did not take from them 60 cities of all the region of Argob. So it gives you an idea. This was a, a pretty substantial sized kingdom, 60 cities. That's pretty large in that day in the ancient culture. Uh, he says of the kingdom of Agabashan, all these cities, notice, were fortified. They had high walls and gates and bars besides a great many rural towns and we utterly destroy them as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, children of every city, but all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as booty or the idea of spoil or plunder for ourselves. So again, I love verse five and six. It's not the word yet there between those two verses, but you get the sense Moses is recounting again. They had fortified cities high walls, high gates, bars, yet, the idea is, verse 5, we utterly destroyed them as we did Sihon, king of the, uh, of the other people group that they had just defeated before them. So again, Moses says, yes, there were these giant walls, there were these obstacles that stood in front of us, yet despite that, despite how big and large the obstacles were, we had victory just as at times prior. And see, that's just a great reminder because something can be a major, major obstacle or it could seem a very minor obstacle. And the bottom line is the difference whether we have victory or defeat really boils down to one thing. Is God with us and God leading us or are we trying to tackle and do this independently on our own? Because if we try and tackle and presumptuously do something independently all on our own, something that has little smurf size gates and only has three people compared to 3,000 people in an army, the tiniest thing which doesn't even seem worthy to consider as an obstacle, it seems like something that we can handle with one hand tied behind our back and one eye closed, God can let us utterly fall on our face and completely fail if we're independent and self-sufficient and trying to do something outside of his direction and his involvement. By the same token, God can bring us against something that has huge walls that's locked down with bars and gates and everything that would seem to say to us, there is absolutely no way this could turn out for victory for you or for your good. But if God is in it, it means nothing. 
because there's nothing too hard for the Lord. And, and God was teaching them this. Know that these were preparatory battles, getting them ready so they'd have confidence in God to trust him as they went into the land of Canaan, which was ahead of them. Moses goes on, verse 8, recounting at that time, he says, we took the land from the hand of those two kings of the Amorites, which were on this side of the Jordan. He's referring to the eastern side, which they had been at that time where they're sitting there at the edge of the promised land from the river Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian and the Amorites call it Senir. All the cities of the plain, all Gilead and Bashan, as far as Salca and Adrei, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant, notice the Bible says, of the giants. There was something very peculiar about this particular race of people, just a large race of people. We're going to see how large now. Look at verse 11. Indeed, his bedstead was an iron bedstead, because probably anything else wouldn't have supported this guy. Is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon so he almost says look is not his bed there that you can validate this now I don't know if that means that this guy's bed was so impressive that there was literally like a museum to keep this thing because it's like go see it it's right there in the museum you can go see it he's saying right there it's in Rabbah the museum of Rabbah this guy's bed look how big it was verse 11 nine cubits was its length four cubits its width according to the standard cubit so Again, a cubit about 18 inches. So you're talking about a bed that's 13 and a half foot long and six foot wide. That's a big dude. And of course, this is the first king size bed. And so you had to know that I was waiting all day to say that. You can only say that the first time you go through the Bible and then it's a boring joke the second time. So, you know, amazing. I mean, this is a large bed here. This is a massive, massive population of people. Interesting, archaeologists, you can do a little digging around and research, have found some historical data on these people and some of the doors that were part of their properties that are still intact with the hinges on them, uh, validating the very scriptural evidence here of how large these people indeed were. And yet again, though they were giants, they were nothing with God together with his people and they were able to overcome them. And you know, th this is a great reminder because in our lives, like David facing his Goliath, we're going to face at times giants in our lives. It may be a, a giant bill. Uh, it may be a giant circumstance. It may be a giant problem. It may be, uh, you know, something that is just some, you know, giant thing of the past that we just can't get over we can't let go that just looms there and constantly is something that holds us back or distracts us some giant thing that's a, a you know a part of our past in some way and the wonderful thing is it does not matter how giant that is with God there's the ability to overcome and God is able to slay the giants in our lives and help us by his grace and power to overcome them he's a God the Bible says who changes not in the same way, he literally helped them overcome these giants, Og, king of Bashan, these very large people. He's able to help us overcome the giants that come into our lives spiritually and circumstantially. Verse 12 now down through verse 
17 is going to basically give us some description of how they settled the two and a half tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan. It's a lot of tedious details, but that's what this is describing. And this land, which we then possessed at that time, Moses says, from Arar, which is by the river Arnon and half the mountains of Gilead and its cities, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites, the ones who chose to settle on the eastern side. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All the region of Argob with all Bashan was called the land of the giants. And Jair, the son of Manasseh, took all the region of Argob as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machakites and called them Bashan after his own name, Havath Jair, to this day. And also, he says, I gave Gilead to Makir and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave from Gilead as far as the river Arnon, the middle of the river as the border. You have all this mapped out, don't you? I can just see it in your brain. Just, just like me. I know exactly where all those places are. <laughs> the plain also, verse 17, with the Jordan as far as the border from Chinneroth, which is typically a reference many times to the Sea of Galilee. So that's one thing we can take notice there, which would sort of be in the northern area. Uh, the Sea of Galilee. And of course, this is to the east of it. As far as the east side of the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, below the slopes of Pisgah. So again, you know, we look at this and we think, boy, you know, these territories, and why really would God want them to conquer the area of Og, King of Bashan? This is sort of, if you were... Uh, you know, on the eastern side, getting ready to cross over the Jordan to head into Israel, uh, this would be uh, to the north. But what God is basically doing is as Israel turns, in a sense, to head into the land of Canaan, what God has done is, is allow them to have victory, what would be their right flank up above them in the north, so that they have to have no hassle from above. So this is why, though, you wonder why would God lead them up into that territory? Well, this is so that on the right flank and the left flank, there's no one that can close in on them as they head in uh, to enter into the land to conquer what God has given to them. So these territories become Israel's territories as God allows the two and a half tribes their concession to settle there, Reuben and Gad a half-tribe of Manasseh. Verse 18, Moses says, Then at that time I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before you, the children of Israel, but your wives and little ones and your livestock, and I know that you have much livestock, shall stay in your cities which I've given you until, verse 20, the Lord has given rest to your brethren as to you. They also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession which I have given to you. So Moses recounts how in accordance with the uh, request of the two and a half tribes, we studied this earlier, who said, look, th th we have livestock, and this is a place that's good for livestock. We don't want to go into the promised land. Let us settle out here on the eastern side in the sense this is good enough. And though it wasn't ultimately God's ideal, it wasn't God's best, God granted them their, their desire. He, in a sense, allowed them to have what they wanted. But Moses gave them this charge that, look, if this is what you're going to choose to do to stay here on the eastern side, it doesn't mean that you can be removed from your moral and spiritual responsibility, which God has already determined that they would go in and take the land. So you need to go in still. And you need to help your other brothers from the congregation of Israel, the other nine and a half tribes, to go in and fight the battles and take possession of the land because, in a sense, God was saying, look, this is bigger than you. 
It's not just about you. And, and here God is saying, look, you have a responsibility. You're going to have to settle and leave your family here. And you're going to have to go into the land with your brothers, he tells them. And you're going to have to send your men of valor, your military men to go over and to fight. Verse 20, until the Lord has given rest to your brethren as to you. And they also possess the land which the Lord your God is giving them beyond the Jordan then he says you may return back and be settled in your land so here Moses reminds again how it was an obligation that they were basically to come alongside they were called to help their other brethren to basically be able to experience God's best they were to help their brethren make progress even though they didn't want to make progress God says look this is bigger than you you're responsible to still help others make progress. And I'll tell you, I look at this and I think this is a good spiritual principle really that applies for our lives as well, is that we need to realize as a part of the family of God, God's children and the congregation of God's people, we're a part of something that's much bigger than us. It's not enough for us just to say, well, this is good enough for me and I'm okay, so it doesn't matter to me if you're struggling or where you're at. I'm okay, so if I'm okay, everything else is okay. Because God tells us that instead we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And we are to be involved in each other's lives, helping each other arm in arm, back to back, standing in the battles that we're all fighting to different extents. And we are to help each other make progress spiritually. We're to help each other to overcome things. Maybe there's not something I'm struggling to overcome right now, but maybe someone else in the family of God does need help to overcome something. Maybe somebody else is fighting a battle and I should be concerned not just about where I'm at, but also seeing other people make progress. And this is why we need each other in the body of Christ. God just reminding them, look, it's not, it's not just about you. It's a bigger thing than that. We're called to be something that God wants us to live together interdependently where we function together, where we help one another to make progress. And the truth of the matter is, isolated from one another and independent from one another, we can't make progress spiritually. We're not intended to do it on our own. By design, are we individual children of God? Yes, but we are called to be a part of a spiritual family. And living isolated spiritually or living independent spiritually, the Lone Ranger mentality, that never works. We rob ourselves, we put ourselves in a vulnerable condition, we miss the full picture and purpose of why we're a part of God's people, and we are robbing other people from helping them to fight the battles in their life and make the progress to enter into all God has for them. And here God was putting this responsibility again upon the people on the eastern side that they did have a bigger responsibility to go and to help others, even as we have a mutual responsibility to one another in the family of God in the church today. Verse 21, he says, And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen, look what he says, all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms through which you pass. You must not fear them, for the Lord your God himself fights for you. So Moses, again, realizing his time is diminishing, realizing that Joshua is now his appointed successor by God. We read earlier that Moses announced this to the people, 
that he publicly recognized Joshua as his successor and the next leader to take over for him as he would not be leading them into the land. It says Moses began to give some of his authority to Joshua. And now here again, Moses is just continuing to invest in this up-and-coming leader, this man who's about to succeed him, and he now gives this challenge, this encouragement to Joshua. And he says, Joshua, verse 21, he says, your eyes have seen all that the Lord has done. Again, he's saying, Joshua, you've experienced the power of God. You've seen what God has done. And he says, as you remember what God has done, be encouraged, he says, because in the same way, so will the Lord do, even as he's already done in the next battles that you fight. And, and, and what he's doing is the same thing that we need to do at time. He's saying to Joshua, look, Think about everything God's done for you already. Look back, he says. Reflect upon the track record of God. He's been so faithful thus far. And sometimes we need to do that in our lives. There are occasions where we, like Joshua, he's saying, don't fear Joshua. Why? Because Joshua's probably feeling a little nervous. He was feeling a little intimidated. He wouldn't say that in vain. And sometimes you start to fear. Sometimes I start to get nervous when we face something or realizing, oh, I don't know, that's looking pretty intimidating in front of me. How am I going to handle it? Or what am I going to do? And what's first? And what's second? And all of a sudden we start to feel anxiety and fear and we feel a little overwhelmed. And those are the occasions where the encouragement of the Lord is he says, look, you've seen all that I've done already. Look what I have done in your life. Look at the battles I have stood with you in and the, and the victories I've already given to you. And he says, in the same way I've done that, I haven't changed. I'm not going to have a bad day. I'm not, I'm not going to have a bad season. It's almost as if you know we watch sports and somebody can have a really great season. And then the next season, it's total inconsistency. They just tank and they're like, you know, last place. God's not like that. The Bible says that God does not change. The Bible says of Jesus that it is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in the same way the Lord has done great things in your life, He will do great things in your life going forward, whatever the next season holds, the next kings and battles and enemies that you're going to have to experience, what you're about to pass through, he will help you pass through that even as he's helped you in the past to pass through other things. And, and how do you know that? He says, verse 22, because the Lord, your God himself, fights for you. Are there battles? Yes. But God is on the forefront, God is the commander-in-chief and all we need to do is get in rank and file behind him and say, Lord, it's not my responsibility to go out there and, and kick and fight and scratch and do everything I can and, and hopefully if I'm losing, you'll give me a little bit of reinforcements. It's the exact opposite. The Lord says, I'm going to fight this for you. I'll be out front. I will fight the battle for you. You don't have to fear. I will come and fight. I mean, how personal. The Lord your God, it's, the Bible puts it purposely. The Lord your God himself fights for you. You could say, well, he's going to send a few pretty strong angels who have all the authority of heaven. But he says, the Lord your God himself. How intimate is that? That God comes and intimately, personally gets involved in your life and himself fights for you in the particular obstacle or resistance or challenge that you're facing at times in your life. Verse 23, as Moses begins to think about God's great faithfulness and the wonderful works of God, he starts to get pretty charged up, and so he, he takes a launch at something here as he's getting pretty excited. He says, at that point, I pleaded, 
with the Lord, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? So he just begins to praise the Lord. Verse 25, he says, I pray, slips in there, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and Lebanon. Now, again, Moses here, as his heart gets stirred with just genuine enthusiasm about the greatness of God and his power and his works. And again, this has been his life ambition. He's put 40 years into leading these people to the inheritance that God has for them into this promised land. But yet we remember the story because of what Moses did in misrepresenting the Lord that time when he struck the rock when he was supposed to speak to the rock, misrepresenting God to the people. God's consequence and discipline was God told Moses, you are not now taking the people into the land. And it was a consequence he suffered for misrepresenting God. And we've talked about that. And, and Moses knows now that Joshua is going to lead them in because God has taken that privilege away from him. That opportunity was lost through those circumstances. So as he gets all excited, he thinks, well, why not take one more stab at it here? <laughs> so he says, Lord, who's an awesome God like you? Your mighty works, your great deeds. So he says, Lord, he says, please, please, Lord, can you let me cross over? Can you, could you reconsider? Would you let me cross into the land to see those pleasant mountains? Verse 26 says, But the Lord was angry with me on your account, and he would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, Enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes toward the west and the north and the south and the east. Behold it with your eyes for you shall not cross over this Jordan. So God says to Moses, Moses, I hear what you're asking, but I've made my decision, Moses. I've already come to my conclusion on this situation. And again, this isn't God browbeating Moses. This isn't God being stubborn and angry with Moses. Let me put this very candidly. This is just called God's God. And God is the prerogative to say yes. And God is the prerogative to say no. And sometimes we pray and God says yes. And sometimes we pray and if you haven't noticed, God says no. <laughs> and and I'll I tell you this, I appreciate this about God. I appreciate that God is a good, loving, all-wise Father who ultimately knows what's best, not only for us individually as his children, but how that all plays in the connection of what he is doing, working all over this planet in circumstances and lives of people and situations. And, and, and when the Lord has determined for something to be, I don't want anything other than what God wants for me. You know, I find myself praying more now the older I get in the Lord and the further along I get in life and ministry. Lord, what do you want for me? Because, Lord, I, that's what I want. Lord, would you choose? Lord, what do you want from me? What, what would you have for me? I don't want what I want. I don't even want to bother suggesting to you what I want. I know God's gracious. There are times where, you know, I, I can, I'm a father. I'm an evil earthly, but I want to bless my kids. I know the nature of God. But at the same time, I realize that, Lord, I, you say yes to what you want to say yes to and say no to what you want to say no to. And here, this is interesting. I find Moses, in a sense, you notice verse 24, 
He's really praising and worshiping the Lord. I mean, look at it. It's spontaneous praise. Lord, you've shown your servant your greatness, your mighty hand. There's no God on heaven and earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds. He's praising, praising, praising God. Isn't it true? Some would say if you just praise and praise and praise God and praise God and then profess what you want, God will give you what you want. Didn't work for Moses. Moses praised the Lord, praised the Lord, praised the Lord. And then he said, God, can I go in? God said, thanks for praising me, but no. (laughs) No, Moses, enough of that. Enough of that, he says. Moses, again, God's not being mean here. He's being just a firm, loving. And this just shows you the intimacy between God and Moses, that they communicated in this very intimate way, like a father and a son. Enough of that, he says. Speak no more to me of this matter. My decision has been made, Moses. And I almost sense that God's saying, Moses, enough of that. Moses, can you, can you trust me with this? Trust me, Moses. Can't you trust me that, that I know what's best for you? And even though there's been a, a mistake on your end, Moses, I can still even work through your mistake. Just trust me with this. The reality is ultimately God gets him into the land, we know, with Jesus in the transfiguration where he appears with Elijah there and he gets into the land anyway. God's gracious to him. But in this situation, the answer comes back no, which goes to show you that Moses was not going to change God's mind. And and that's a good thing. I appreciate that when God has determined something, God knows how to hold the standard, hold the line like a parent in a gracious, loving way. And, you know, maybe there's been something in your life and, and, and you've been trying. You've been trying to change God's mind. And you've been doing what you can to think, well, if I just keep rubbing God the right way or be a good girl or be a good boy, I mean, eventually, maybe I can get him to to change his mind. Get him to give me plan B. And God's already determined. And you know what God has already determined because of what's happened and what's transpired. God, okay, this is settled now. It's not happening. And we keep pleading and pressing and pushing. and, And sometimes I think there comes a time where God says, enough of that. Enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. I've made my determination, accept my no, accept it in faith, and move on to the next thing that you have. And he says to Moses, Moses, go up, look at the land, but you're not going in. But verse 28, he says to him, but command Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him. For he shall go over before this people and he shall cause them to inherit the land which you will see. So we stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Now, we've talked about this before. Again, how even in these just literal historical circumstances where Moses made a mistake, he lost the opportunity to bring them in. But yet Joshua, his successor, is the one who then does bring the people into the land. And how going into the land is a picture of entering into the life of of the Spirit and the fullness of the Spirit-filled life and how all of that is a picture of how Moses as the law, following the law, the law can't bring us into the life of the Spirit. Our Joshua, Jesus Christ, he's the one who can bring us in through the person of Christ into the life and fulfillment of everything God has in the promised life of the Spirit for us. I think this becomes really critical now because think about it. Moses is trying to get God to change his mind. And the reality is, again, because God knows, does Moses realize me and Joshua are going to be this really cool type in biblical typology for people to learn about all down? Does Moses know that? No, because he doesn't know the big picture. But what if God would have made a concession? 
And God would have made it, well, God would have mucked up something that Moses already had just messed up, which was a representation of Christ. When Moses struck the rock the second time, when all he had to do was speak to the rock, which was supposed to be a picture of Jesus, smitten once and now just spoken to in faith for the water of life to come from. So again, we see all the more reason why it was important that God at times say, Moses, listen, there's something way bigger here than you don't see, son. It's way bigger than you. So trust me with my answer. Trust me with my answer. Accept it. Submit to it. And instead, encourage Joshua. Strengthen him. Again, the idea is, Moses, you can't do this, but Joshua has been called to do this. And so therefore, even though you can't do what you desire, I've selected someone else to do it. So get behind them and encourage them and strengthen them. And I think this is good spiritual principle for us. Sometimes we may really strongly desire to do something. But maybe it's not God's will for us to do it. Maybe God's called someone else to do the exact same thing. What we can do is still participate by whoever that person may be that God has called to do it, to do what we can to be an encourager and to be a supporter and a facilitator and someone who can come alongside and, and encourage them and strengthen them. And maybe sometimes it's someone like this, like a Joshua. Maybe it's a younger person. Maybe someone who we can see there's potential and something wonderful, some call God has on their life. And, and, and maybe perhaps you've always had this burden and desire to do something. Maybe it was for ministry or for missions or to, to accomplish something. And maybe God says, look, I, I, it's not you, but this child that I've given to you to raise or this young person that I've put into your life, in, pour into them, encourage them, strengthen them, that they might be able to be successful and fulfill all of those things at times that are desires maybe in our own hearts. So just this beautiful thing, how Moses is called now to invest in a sense in Joshua. That's the next generation, to invest in the younger generation that they might go further than they had gone. And I'll tell you, any one of us in this room this evening who's, you know, 40 years old and, and above, that, sh that should be our hearts. Our hearts should be concerned about the next generation. That we should realize, look, th th this is a part of the church now and this is who is going to carry the baton if Jesus tarries and we go on to be with the Lord. And, and we, we, we need to realize the value of investing in young people. And wanting to see young people, Joshua's and Daniel's and people like this who, who can have hearts that are sold out for the Lord and that they would be able to be encouraged and strengthened to go further than we have gone and that we would give away some of our spiritual authority and what we should, we'd give it away and give it to the younger generation and let them step up and begin to embrace the things of God and the work of God and to, to take it and to move it forward into the next season as Joshua would do here. Just this great encouragement. Boy, that's a good reminder for all of us, that value of investing in the next generation spiritually as Moses was describing here. Chapter 4 now, he begins sort of the applicational part of his message. He rehearsed the history. And now he sort of begins to get applicational in the sermon. He says, Now, Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. So he now calls them to hearken, to listen. He's going to begin to give encouragements now in this latter portion of this first sermon. He says, Listen, pay attention to the statutes and judgments which I teach you. And notice, he didn't just teach them so that they could be well-educated. It says, which I teach you to observe. 
that you may live. In other words, he's reminding them, yes, listen. Yes, learn. But the reason I want you to listen to learn as I speak the word of God to you, Moses is saying to the congregation, is that you might observe the things of God, that you might put it into practice, that you might obey the ways of God and walk out the law of God as it was given to them, much like James says to us in the New Testament, that we would not only be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And so important, again, because what's Moses doing? In essence, he's, he's communicating a message. And God help us if we begin to be you know, those who are zealous Bible students who study the scripture diligently on our own and get a deep theological intellect and become very heady spiritually, but it never penetrates our heart and we never observe the things that we're learning and we never live it out. We're missing the whole point. Or if we enjoy listening to Bible study after Bible study after Bible study and we're burping scriptures because we're having scriptural indigestion and we love to listen to the Word. Look, I understand. I love to listen to the Word. But if we're never listening to it with the hard intention of, Lord, speak to me something and show me how to observe it now. Show me how to repent because of what you said to me or what you've corrected me and make that alteration. Help me to make that correction in my life with my family, my, my spouse, the way I conduct myself with other people or my attitude or some command to obey or some you know, principle or promise to really hold on to and to trust God with. If we never observe those things and put it into practice, James says we're falling into self-deception. We really become nothing more than a group of people who love to study a book and, and in a sense, listen to spiritual lectures, like a, a, a Bible institution. That that's all we really become. And as the church, we're called to be living disciples, learning the Word and living the Word, living out the Word. Both of those things are vitally important. They go hand in hand. And here, again, Moses, the theme of this book, we've said it, and we'll see it repeatedly throughout. I can't stress it enough. It's a theme of obedience. Learning that we might live, he says, that you would observe and live and go in, go, take and act upon the things that you're learning, the land which the Lord your God is giving you. In verse 2, you shall not add to the word, which I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. So a strong warning there, an injunction, you're not to edit the word, Moses says. You're not to amend the word. You're to receive it in its purity, in its sincerity, and you're not to alter it or try and adjust it. Notice he says you don't add to the word and you don't take from the word. And those are two common mistakes that we can make if we don't have a reverence for the authority of the word that we can make that mistake. It was a mistake that was being made in Jesus' day where the Pharisees, the legalists, they added to the word. They added traditions and man-made ideas which Jesus said, you're teaching the traditions religiously as if they're the commands of God. And they were adding all these additional ideas that weren't even things that the scripture, they were adding to the word of God. Legalistic rules and rituals and ideas and convictions of men and that's what we can do we can we can take the word of god and then begin to add things to it maybe we have a strong conviction about something nothing wrong with having a strong conviction what god's given us that liberty in christ that's called grace 
One person esteems every day the same. Another person esteems one day higher than another. Let each man be esteemed in his own mind. One person can eat meat. The other person says, I can only eat vegetables. I have a conviction. Fine, we're allowed to have convictions. What we don't ever want to do is begin to take our conviction and begin to add somehow as if that carries the authority of the word of God. And now we're adding something to the word, some rule or ritual, and we're trying to put it upon someone else or we're trying to observe it as it's as important as scripture. And maybe we're disobeying other scriptures because we're more concerned about this little rule or ritual or practice that we've put into place, which really is nothing more than legalism. In the same way, he says, don't take from the word. That's what the Sadducees did. They watered down the word of God. They were the liberals in that day. They found portions of scripture that they didn't like. And if it didn't line up with the lifestyle they wanted to live, or in some way it challenged some area of sin by calling it immorality from God's perspective, they, they said, well, we don't think we like that part. So they, w- they, w- they would leave out that part. They wanted to remove portions of scripture. They wanted to write first flesh alonians. They said, well, we like this. This is, this is what we like. It, it doesn't include this passage and this passage because so, so we're going to remove some sections and that's what people can do as well. They like some parts of the word of God when the Bible says that all scripture has been given by inspiration of God. You can't come to the Bible and start implementing. I, I call it salad bar theology. When you walk up to a salad bar, you know, Rick and I can walk up to the same salad bar. His salad probably be bigger than mine, I'm sure, right? Yeah. Okay, but we walk up to the salad bar and we pick and choose what we like. I like this, but I don't like that. I like this, but I don't like that. And I pick and choose and put on my plate, not everything, but I choose what I like. And some people do that theologically and some people are obviously doing that and continue to keep doing that, today's day and age especially, with the Word of God. It's salad bar. Well, this we like and these parts we like, but that area there, hmm, you know, that doesn't line up with the lifestyle that I'd like to live. Or that doesn't jive with the perspectives that I want to hold. So therefore, I'm going to somehow explain that away. I'm going to discount that. Is it that, that, that maybe that, you know, that's not inspired or that was just for that time period historically and it doesn't really, and people are taking away from the word of God. Both of those are hazardous and both of those, the Bible warns, are extremely dangerous. Because you don't tamper with God's word. God's word is eternal. It says it's settled in the heavens forever. Which means when God wrote it, it was settled. Again, just like Moses didn't change God's mind when he prayed, you're not going to change and alter God's word. The Bible says not one yacht or one tittle, not one portion of it, not one little dot or period or, or little apostrophe is going to pass away from the word of God. Every part of it. So we don't want to add to it. We don't want to take away from it. Moses says, don't do that. Simply just keep it. Keep the commandments. Verse 3, your eyes have seen what the Lord did. He says, at Baal of Peor, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. Remember, that was the incident there in Numbers 25 where some 24,000 people died because they didn't honor God's word, but instead they followed their own cravings their own lusts and they were seduced into immorality and into sexual immorality with the Moabite women and as a result they brought tremendous consequence upon their nation and they lost the lives of 24,000 people suffered death because they did not hold to the integrity of what God had given to them in the law and went for their lusts instead. Verse 4 he says in contrast but you who held fast 
the contrast to the Lord your God are alive today every one of you so God sets an illustration he says when my word was disregarded at Baal of Peor what was the result death devastation destruction incredible loss but he says but those of you who held fast to the Lord and to his word he says you're alive it preserved you and again the spiritual principle stands obeying God's word will bring life it will preserve you it will keep you disobeying God's word disregarding God's word by altering it or adjusting it is always going to bring the same as what happened in Baal of Peor. It's going to bring devastation and destruction and death and damage to lives. That same principle stands. That's why it's so important and safe to live according to the word of God. It gives us life and life that abundantly all the more, even as Jesus spoke about. Verse 5, Surely I've taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, verse 6, be careful, he says, to observe them. Again, notice all the emphasis on obedience. Be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and will say, as a testimony, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that God has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him? And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all the law which I set before you this day? So Moses here says another reason why it would be so valuable for Israel to obey the law of God, to keep the word of God, to observe it and to, to live it out, as he says, as you observe the law, verse 6, he says, you observe the word of God, be careful to observe it. He says, for this will become your wisdom and your understanding. It, it would make one wise. We read in the New Testament, Paul says in, to Timothy, he, he says that, that it's the word of God that makes a person wise for salvation. There's incredible wisdom. Again, you don't have to be a genius intellectually. You don't have to be super educated. You don't have to be someone with a high IQ. But if you live a life that honors the word of God and observes the word of God, you will have such wisdom and understanding because it's called living well. It's living well. It's living wisely. It's living with understanding of how life works and how God intended it to work. And you take the word of God as your standard and you apply it to your marital relationship and to how you raise your children and to how you manage your money and to how you do relationships in life and how you make decisions and you implement that wisdom and that understanding from the word of God and, and, and you're going to live a good life. You're going to live well. And it's going to cause people to say, wow, these people, they're, they're so wise and they're so understanding. They don't seem like they're the you know, sharpest knife in the box, but boy, they're They're wise. And they seem to have an understanding. They, they live well. And there's the sense of respect then that comes upon God's people because people realize that we possess something. And it's nothing of ourselves. It's just the very wisdom of God that's been given to us from his word. And it was what made the nation of Israel such a great nation. They were, well, what great nation is there that has God so near that we can call upon him and has such statutes and righteous judgments I've set before you this day. Again, this reality of how they were a nation that was founded 
that, that was, was a theocracy. God was at the center of their nation. The word of God was the basis of many of their social laws and their practices and how they governed themselves. And that was what made them a great nation. Boy, isn't it interesting as we realize that that was what made Israel such a great nation. When they held to that, it was what made them excel and be a strong, great nation. And as they began to ignore that and disregard that is the very thing that caused them to unravel at the seams. It's the very thing that caused them to become vulnerable to their enemies, which then began to overcome them and destroy them. And I'll tell you this, the Bible says righteousness exalts a nation, sin is a reproach to any people. And when you look at the foundation of our country in many ways i realize we're not israel but when you look that we drew so much of what we were looking for when we sought to establish this nation with this understanding of having god and and, and being a people who had a reverence for god and taking a judeo-christian ethic from the word of god and the principles of the word of god for our government and our laws and our legal system and the way to govern ourselves societally that's what made this nation such a great nation is that we were people who honored god we honored god's word initially we had a reverence for god and the further we depart from that the more we continue to cause deterioration and the unraveling and you look at our country unraveling at the seams you look at the vulnerability and how we are finding ourselves becoming weakened and overcome and becoming more vulnerable to further and further problematic things. And again, it's just history repeating itself. That's why God says again and again, look verse 9, only take heed to yourself, diligently keep yourself. We're going to see that theme throughout this chapter. God keeps saying, pay attention. Examine yourself, take heed to yourself. Don't let yourself get sloppy, God's going to say. Don't let yourself get sloppy in regards to your relationship to the Word of God. He's going to say, pay attention. Do a heart check once in a while because it's the very thing that keeps us safe and keeps us healthy spiritually. Let's stand. Let's.